2: I met a guy who wrote for a magazine and he was interested to do a story on me because of my rapping. So when he actually came to see me in Brownsville and came to my crib and all that, he saw the pictures everywhere and the clothing and all. And he said, he asked me, are you a lowlife? I said, yeah, I'm one of the founders of lowlife. So, you know, the, the direction of the interview went, all the way into low life. Like the interest was so crazy there.
3: Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, Yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music. Let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a solid giant. Want to walk in their shoes, Silent Giants. Want to study they move, Silent Giants. Want to know what they do, Silent Giants. Silent Giants, y'all. <laughs> Welcome to the Silent Giants podcast, a podcast highlighting the superstars behind your favorite superstars in creative industries. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at, at @silentgiantspodcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at at Corey Cambridge. Today on the show, we have a very special guest, Thurston Howe III, the silent giant behind Ralph Lauren. Thurston co-founded New York City's infamous Low Life crew. Low Life is credited for making Ralph Lauren's polo brand a staple in the hip hop community. In this interview, Thurston dials in to chat about growing up in Brownsville, Brooklyn, founding Low Life, and his legacy on hip hop fashion. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the fashion icon, artist, influencer, my friend, the silent giant, Thurston Howell III. All right, Thurston, welcome to the show, my man. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? Man, life is good. Life is good. Where are you from?
2: Well, I'm from Brownsville, Brooklyn. I'm from the Marcus Garvey Village. In Brownsville, Brooklyn. That's a housing complex. Uh, That's where I was raised at.
3: And uh, what was it like growing up in Brownsville?
2: It was pretty crazy. At the same time, it was a lot of fun growing up in Brownsville. You know, definitely a strange environment for people who don't know what Brownsville is all about. or understand Brooklyn, you know. A lot of housing projects, a lot of crime, a lot of drugs. A lot of police everywhere. You know, that's what growing up in Brownsville is like. Uh, you know, I I got two young two younger sisters that I lived in an apartment with in Marcus Garvey as well as with my mother. Uh we didn't have much family in the area. Uh you know, all my family was scattered around and things like that, but uh not too many family members uh visit us visited us either in brownsville you know just a selected few that were familiar with the area or from those places so i basically kind of grew up without my family you know throughout my teenage years and things like that so you know just my immediate family meaning my mother and my sisters
3: were you like really into school did you enjoy school did you do well in
2: school uh no I, i was someone who really wasn't into school and um Neither was I forced or or neither were the ideas of the education really presented to me. You know, as a young kid, man, nobody really instilled the importance of the education. I I basically dropped out in junior high school, you know. So, like I said, my mother was constantly in and out of prison and things like that. So you never had a phone at home. So, you know, whenever my mother would get locked up, we wouldn't have a clue of where she was. We had no phone. There was no communication coming in at home and things like that. So I didn't have to go to school. When I woke up in the morning, I didn't feel like going to school. I didn't go. There was nobody there to force me to go to school.
3: Uh, who were your early influences um, or as far as like role models, like during that time?
2: I mean, within Brownsville, my early influences were probably the hip hop artists, you know, things like that. What I was seeing and, and hearing within the music or the graffiti writers and the gangsters in the neighborhood, you know, people who were feared. And, and Those were people who I kind of admired, you know,
3: uh, who were some of the hip hop artists that had a big influence um, on
2: you? Oh, uh, like I always say, Jimmy Spicer had a big influence on me as far as being a character in the raps and things like that, becoming another personality. I think he really paved the way for that for all the artists that came after him, like Slick Rick and Dana Dane and rapping Duke and things like that. And um,
3: before you found the Low Life Crew, uh, who were your early fashion influences?
2: Um the streets. You know? I didn't mean, I wasn't too familiar with who the designer was and things like that, but we were familiar with the brands. But it was more the streets, you know, the way things were worn on the streets, you know, like those leather outfits Run D M C used to wear. You know, that was happening on the streets, so I was I wasn't influenced by Run D M C to wear them. I was influenced by the streets. And the same with the sheepskin coats and the gazelles and all that. This was being presented more on the streets than it was actually in the hip-hop. I mean, it came into the hip-hop and things like that, but the effect was from the streets, man. So whatever I seen going on in the hood and and the styles from the hood and, you know, the gangsterism in the style. So tell me.
3: Tell me the story of how Low Life was founded. I mean, Low Life was founded in
2: 1988. It was founded by, you know, two different groups of kids from two different sections of Brooklyn. From the Crown Heights area where the Ralphie's kids lived on St. John's Place in Utica. And then, you know, there was the kids from the Marcus Garvey Village in Brownsville the whole other side of thing. It founded in it was founded in eighty eight as far as low life is concerned, but their history and style and, and influence went years before that, you know, like the it was already happening many years before low life was actually even born. You know, so we basically came together and we became uh walking billboards for Ralph Lauren and things like that, you know, just having a hood, style, and swag, and, and just going all over New York City and and showing the rest of New York how we was doing it. You know, we was always at every concert, every movie screening. Uh, you know, whatever was going on in hip-hop, we were there at the time. So, And we were basically showing off our styles. And, you know, a lot of people know the story that it came from a lot of shoplifting and and rushes and stores and things you know there was a variety of ways that that we got our hands on these clothes it wasn't just all the boosting or buying and you know there was a thousand ways you know some dudes had chicks working in Macy's and you know we also had a trade system we had a bunch of things you know but the the thing was to accumulate as much blindness as you can and be able to switch it up as much as you wanted to
3: and, and what was the what was the reason? Do you think for for the original reason for starting Low Life?
2: In poverty and struggle. We had no real intentions of anything, you know. It was just what our day to day life consisted of. So you know, we had a lot of kids in Low Life that were, came from dysfunctional households, man. So what was happening on the street was only one aspect of what you had to deal with inside your own home. So that's you know one of the reasons things became a brotherhood and things like that. You know, we all were basically outlets for each other in some form or fashion. You know, just being there, just surviving together, that, you know, handling the things that were approaching us on the street as well, you know, we living in Brownsville and Crown Heights. Things were really crazy in the 80s, you know. It was a family like I said, like you asked me earlier, I only had my mother and my two sisters in my project. You know, there were a lot of low life where everybody had like four or five different cousins in different apartments in the projects and things like that. You know, so it was just me and my two sisters and my mom. So, like you said, it was it was a family because these these were the people I looked to and trusted, and people I could rely on rely on, and people I spent my day-to-day activities with.
3: And so uh, what attracted you and the other guys to Ralph Lauren and Polo? What did it represent to you?
2: I mean, it, it was more the fashion evolution of things. Because, you know, I always explain it started way before Polo, you know, the coordination of the gear and things like that. It happened many years before we even looked at the Polo. It was an evolution. You know, the, the Puma suits and the kangos and the Adidas suits and the Lee jeans, the Lee suits, the Adidas shell toes, leather blazers, Beaver Kangol's, you know. It was a process that all led up to the polo, but we were still doing it in the same manner before the polo. It was basically a B-boy style still. You know what I mean? So what made the polo so attractive and attracted us to it and things like that is because uh, it wasn't available in your local stores uh, almost at all. You no, know, you had to go to these high-end stores to actually get this kind of clothing. You know, they didn't sell it on Pickett Avenue and Brownsville. They wasn't selling it downtown Brooklyn unless you went to Macy's or A S and s th-
1: Say hello to a new era of mental health care.
0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Things like that. So it was pretty exclusive. You had to venture out of your neighborhood to find these clothes.
3: Like, Who put you onto it? Like, like how did you discover uh, Polo and Ralph Lauren?
2: All of us were heavy into the Benetton when Benetton came out. So, you know, here we go. We off to New Jersey, uh, getting on buses and, you know, trying to find malls and outlets that held this Benetton stuff so we could go take it. So we were basically influencing each other. It wasn't like I watched a a soap opera or something and saw some polo. (laughs) It It was just us influencing each other, you know, by our styles, like, You know, my man Beck Live had a lot to do with influencing, with the polo heavy on our side. You know, my man Hazel. You know, just watching each other and the different things we came across ourselves.
3: And so, uh, how did you all, like, come across, like, getting the clothes? Like, you mentioned earlier about, like, maybe somebody having a girlfriend, um, you know, who worked at Macy's or something like that. Like, what was the traditional way of, like, obtaining the clothes?
2: Uh well, One of the ways we were coming across it was we all had messenger jobs in Manhattan. So through these jobs, we're scouting the entire city while we're working. We were foot messengers, you know, taking the subway, going to different addresses. You might walk past the Gucci store five times in one day because of your, your routes on your messenger runs and things like that. So that was one of the main ways we were finding out where Paragons was at, you know, where, where the, the polo mansion was at, the messenger job. And it sent us all over the city, and we really learned to see what the city was like. Now,
3: what did you realize that you were having a cultural impact on hip-hop and on fashion culture? Was there, like, a, a pivotal point where you were like, you know, we're really influencing shit?
2: Uh, we never thought about this shit, man, to be honest with you. I didn't realize it until, you know, when I became an artist doing music, and I remember my first time being approached by magazines, you know, to do a story. Like, I, I you know, I was at a battle at Rocksteady Park one year, and I'm battling everybody in the park, and you know, this is me brand new as a rapper, so... I met a guy who wrote for a magazine and he was interested to do a story on me because of my rapping. So when he actually came to see me in Brownsville and came to my crib and all that, he saw the pictures everywhere and the clothing and all. And he said, he asked me, are you a lowlife? I said, yeah, I'm one of the founders of lowlife. So, you know, the, the direction of the interview went all the way into lowlife, like the interest was so crazy there. So that's when I kind of understood the the impact we were having when, you know, I'm meeting writers and other people in the industry that are amazed to just hear that I'm an actual lowlife. You know, the story of the lowlife is somewhat fabled in New York City. You know, we're mystic like the fucking tooth fairy or something. So many people have stories, but not everyone witnessed with their own eyes to say, wow, that really happened, you know?
3: Right, right, right. I mean, it, it's also, too, I think what's also engaging about the, intriguing about the story of the Low Life crew is that like the polar opposite ends of the spectrum of how Ralph Lauren is represented, because they're marketed as such a high-end, suburban, <laughs> preppy brand. But... It's very interesting how, you know, young black kids, young minorities from the inner cities embrace that and it kind of flipped into its own thing. Uh, have you ever been reached out yep. by by Ralph Lauren or uh, by Polo at all?
2: Uh, yeah, I released a book last year and Ralph Lauren bought five books. That's the most reaching out they ever done. I guess they were, you know, interested this, to read about the story and see the pictures but. You know, I, I've had several encounters dealing with the Ralph Lauren Company and things like that, you know, regarding us doing movies. And, and, you know, we've had meetings and, you know, they basically tell us that we don't need their permission for anything with the clothing and all that. But, you know, go right ahead and use it. But they want nothing to do with us in a way. You know, our story is negative in and, and some sorts to them or and, you know, our music is a little crazy and things like that so they don't want to uh, no attachments to low life.
3: Um, like how did how did you know that they bought a couple
2: of the, of the books? Is
3: there like a, a backstory behind that?
2: Oh, uh, they they were purchased through from the company through the online. Ah, really? And they yeah, they bought five books at one time.
3: Like, how do you feel about you know, Ralph Lauren of the company not really embracing uh, hip-hop culture and embracing really what you've
2: done to their brand? I I mean, I really never cared. It never mattered to me. I wasn't thinking of them when we started doing this, you know? We were just doing what we do in our way. We wasn't looking for the acknowledgement from anyone but the girls and things like that and the respect of our peers, so... You know, it, it never really made a difference Whether they acknowledged us or not You know, even though they, they Could stand to write us a nice big check For all our promotions And things like that, but uh, It really never mattered to me Personally, you know, I'm living my life And that's all I see This journey as, I've been living my life I, There was never An intention of doing Anything that's going on This, All of this just happened the way
3: it's flowing, you know? Uh, so I'm, I'm going to put you in a hypothetical situation, all right? So imagine that uh, we are, I got us a nice restaurant, we're going to actually, we're going to, a polo club, we're going to go to polo club in Manhattan, and I'm going to bring you in with me, and sitting down, uh, Ralph Lauren is at, is at the table, mm-hmm. and he says, yo, yo, Mr. Howe, come have a seat. Uh, what, what would you want to have a talk with him about?
2: Uh, maybe giving back some, you know, like not not just to low lives or anything, just to the communities that have supported him, you know, to the people that they don't acknowledge, you know, like give back in some kind of sense. Cause I think we we've made Ralph Lauren the only brand that's worshipped religiously in hip hop culture, you know. Gucci maybe has the same impact, but not like Ralph Lauren, people don't collect Gucci, everything, head to toe, accessories, people buy shit that don't even fit them in polo, just to have the item, you know, so I would tell Ralph Lauren, hey Ralph man, you know, get back, get back to the communities, get back to our neighborhoods, or you know, offer some of our brothers, our, our members, some jobs. Uh, you know let us be designers let us consult let us help like give us give back some opportunities for all we've done that will be greatly appreciated
3: now you mentioned that we, we had definitely Ralph is definitely you know the, the front runner of you know probably American fashion but as, as you've documented before uh, Ralph is not the only brand that you like uh, who would be number two to you um, as far as Uh, American fashion
2: brands? I I would say Gucci. Gucci's like the top-notch shit. You know what I mean? Gucci makes... They don't make that much attire for the hood motherfuckers to really flip the way we flip the Ralph Lauren stuff. But, you know, I would say they're probably the most respected after Polo. Or maybe even before Polo because they're way more expensive.
3: So how do you feel about the change? Uh, How do you feel about the change uh, of of old New York to New New York today? And how do you think that's influenced (laughs) the art here?
2: Uh, Change is inevitable, man. There's nothing you could do about it. Some people don't know how to embrace change or or evolve with change, man. I'm one of those people who understand how necessary change is. Um, Nothing is gonna stay the way you like it all the time. That's something I understand. You know even when it comes to the music i look at the my generation or how much they hate the trap music and these artists and all that but it's still evolution you know because the generation before us hated our hip-hop in the same way the trap is being looked at you know so i'm kind of understanding to how things change and the generations before do not accept it you know but I understand what it is, man. I mean, I respect it. The biggest thing I can say about the gentrification in New York, they're really cleaning it up. You know? Like, they're cleaning it up. It's sad that they're pushing out the people who can't afford, but if you own your properties and things like that, you know, the gentrification, you actually benefit from it. Right. You know, you benefit from it by selling your property at a crazy high value, or you or you benefit from having a, a more... Cleaner, safer environment because you know they, they're focusing on the economics of it all and, and bringing it up from that standpoint. And it's understandable, you know, like intertwine yourself within it. But even from the art perspective, you know, I live over here in, in Wynwood in, in the art district of Miami where Art Basel happens. So basically, the same thing happened over here. You know, I've been back and forth in this neighborhood since 1974 and I've seen gentrification just happen recently I've seen the transition of the entire neighborhood I've seen it turn into the art district and I've seen how every artist who exists here can benefit from this platform now if they choose to first right you know
3: well Thurston I want to say man thank you so much for taking the time to to chat with me again today I really appreciate it
2: alright that's cool take care my man Bye-bye.